This is from Matthew 18, verses 1 to 20. It says, Moreover, if your brother sin against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two, or three, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, so we are uh, still in our um, Matthew discourse study. We've been all summer. Um, after t- tomorrow night, we'll finish the ecclesiological discourse. If you want to be theological and impress people with your big words, um, the discourse on the church. If you want to be normal. Um, we finish that next week, and then we've got one more discourse, uh, and that's the scariest one. I'm terrified. I, I may bail. It's the discourse on the end times. I don't even like. I don't even. I don't even know how we're going to handle that. So I've been reading and studying, um, but I'm not that kind of guy. So uh, pray for me as I study because um, I'm afraid of those passages. But we're going to do our best to go through them. We've covered the Sermon on the Mount this summer. Um, where Jesus takes us um, kind of below the surface. We're going to go there again tonight. That's actually part of our message tonight. We studied the missional discourse where Jesus sends out the church, um, gives them this uh, message, go and proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand, that things are different, things are changing. We did the parabolic discourse where Jesus for one entire sermon just tells little stories, little parables. Um, and we uncovered some of those. And for the last several weeks, we've been in the discourse on the church. And, uh, and we started out by talking about how this discourse is, is about heart posture. This, there's not a whole lot of how in this discourse, not a whole lot of how to do church. Um, we talked our first week about how if Jesus were to walk in today in the flesh, we would have to teach him how to do church because uh, he never experienced most of this. Like he, this isn't... This isn't necessarily what he was concerned with. The how we do it isn't what really impresses him. It's the why we do it. And so he spends this, this entire sermon dealing more with the why than the how. Um, and and the, the big part of the why is our heart posture, where our heart's at. And we talked the first week that this whole message started from this, this question they asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom? They asked him, who's the greatest? And so Jesus just seemed to have this message kind of locked and loaded and ready to go. Because as soon as they asked the question, he grabbed what would have been kind of the lowest social figure um, in the culture that day, which would have been a child. They didn't even count him um, in any, any uh, uh, census counts. They had no legal protection. They were basically an overlooked citizen. And he, and he took them and he said, this is the greatest in the kingdom. And he kind of flipped the social order. And he said, well, if you want to know who the greatest in the kingdom is, you've got to turn it over. And, and he, he kind of plays with some cultural jokes of the day and, and says, you be careful you don't offend 
you know, because they were afraid of offending people above them, you know, people who could actually punish them for offending them. You didn't dare offend somebody in a higher social class. And so he's like, hey, you be careful. You don't ever offend one of these kids. It'd be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the ocean and you, and you offend one of these. And he starts the whole thing by saying, unless you turn and, and become like what you look down on, unless you turn and see yourself in those you look down on, um, you can't even access the kingdom of heaven. You can't, you can't function in the kingdom of heaven. And, and so then last week, he, he rolled that straight into uh, the lost sheep parable, which we're all really familiar with. And, he, and we're used to taking it from this, look how amazing God is. He'd leave the 99 and go chase the one, which is always true. But Jesus, the tone of it is a little different. Jesus says, which one of you, if you had 100 sheep, wouldn't, and one got away, wouldn't go get it? And anybody who's any, anywhere near a farm knows that's the way it is. You don't just, just because you have 100 cows, you don't just go, huh, one got out. Ah, that's all right. I'm not worried about it. You can't do business that way. You chase it down. I spent many an hour running down county roads in Leavenworth to get cows back. You know, because you know, and we were teenagers, so we were like, dude, you got like 400. Can't we let that one go? But, you know, no, you absolutely can't let that one go. So he's playing on that. He's like, hey, which one of you wouldn't chase down some of your own property if it got away? But you, you're worried about who's the greatest. You're worried about who you can look down on. You're, you're asking me questions like, hey, who's your favorite? And I'm going, hey, some of my kids are lost. Like, do you think I'm concerned with favorites right now? Like, my kids are missing. And, and so Jesus kind of sets this tone that he's about saving the lost. He's about, he said, I've come to save that which is lost. Which brings us into tonight's um, uh, message when he talks about how to handle a brother who offends you, which I think is incredibly timely um, because we live in a culture of offense. We get offended so easy thought that was pretty good. Morning, America. What are we offended by today? We're offended by everything today. You can't go on social media without somebody having their feelings hurt about something. We are a, we are a, a, a nation and an, in an era of offense. We're easily offended right now. Nobody has a very thick skin. And so I thought this was a pretty good um, message for today. I think it's super practical. But here's how we're going to do this. We're going to start Oh, that's a terror. That came out terrible. Um, above the surface. You guys remember this picture from the, from the uh, Sermon on the Mount? We're going to start above the surface. We're going to talk about a, a big how, how you handle somebody who has offended you. A real practical, kind of a step-by-step thing Jesus gives us. And then we're going to go to kind of the why we would do that. We're going to get into the shallow why. And then we're going to go into like the deeper why, the real why. And then finally, after we do the deeper why, we're going to do the deeper how. Which is, so we're going to start shallow, how, why, why, how. Okay? And that's going to be kind of our outline for tonight. So, let's get started. How to handle offense. Step number one, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So, obviously, let me read that again. If your brother sins against you, go and tell it on Facebook between... No, wait, I got that wrong. If your brother sin against you, go and tell ten people who will pray for the situation, right? If they, and it doesn't even say go and tell God alone. It doesn't even say just go deal with it between you and God. It says go and tell the person between the two of you. We go to the offender and we talk to them privately. And the Bible actually tells us more how to do this. Um, in Galatians, Paul says, 
Uh, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And so this, this privacy, this one-on-one thing is important because um, obviously as soon as there's more people involved, there's more ego involved. I don't know if you guys know this. Like if you call somebody out in front of someone, it's considerably different. We used to... Um, I used to have a fight club. I don't know if anybody's ever heard me tell this story before, but um, my oldest son drugged some school friends who had never been to church to youth group one day, and it was a really boring, um, dry youth group. And they were all like, dude, that was dumb. I can't believe you do that every Wednesday. And he was embarrassed. And so he came to me and said, Dad, if I start a fight club, will you teach a Bible study And uh, at it? And I was like, yeah, I guess. And so I had keys to the church and I knew nobody was up there on Monday. So we would go up, sneak up to the church and, and go in. And, uh, and within a couple of weeks, we had like 30 teenage boys that would come and we would warm up a little. They would sit down and listen to me teach the Bible. And then we would punch each other for like two hours. And, uh, and I, would, I would teach them some MMA moves and, we would, uh, and, we would, and they would fight. And, the, and so we had, we had rules in this whole thing. Rule number one was you can't make fun of anybody in any way, no matter what. Not even the normal teasing you would do because it's way different having someone tease you when they're punching you in the nose than it is when they're not punching you in the nose. Like, and so I was like, everything has to stay 100% positive, no negativity whatsoever. The running joke was, if I catch you teasing anybody, you have to fight me. That was the, that was the standing um, joke. And so uh, rule number one, no making fun of anybody. Rule number two was no girls. <laughs> I know it's kind of sexist to do. I'm getting away with it today. But two guys can punch each other real hard and go, hey, nice punch, man. Well, I give a hug afterwards unless there's a girl watching. When there's a girl watching, it's a totally different ball game. It wasn't that I didn't think girls could fight. It wasn't that I didn't think. You know, it wasn't, I was just like, I can't handle boys and the amount of testosterone that shows up when a girl walks in the room. So I was like, I just, we can't do that. And, that's, and I think that's important, even in this parable, that one-on-one things are different than they are in a crowd. Like one-on-one is, con- is a con- considerably different environment than when you get other people involved. And by the way, we did, we did Fight Club for a year. Um, we had people knocked out. We had blood. And has anybody ever seen the movie Fight Club? A couple, well, you know, they've got these underground fight clubs where they're beating each other up and you're just walking through town and you see another guy with a black eye and, it, you know, and you just look at each other because you both know, you know, we're, we're both in, and, but you're not allowed to talk about it, so you don't. Well, we were fighting on this short commercial carpet and so every single guy at fight club had huge scabs on his elbows from times when you'd be on the ground and you'd just wicked rug burns. And they said that the kids would walk through high school and look at each other's elbows and be like... Yeah, we're in. Yeah, we know. Like, and so, yeah, we had this big... But we did it for a year and uh, never had any issues. It was, we were really, really fortunate there. But, um, but this, this, uh, this privacy thing, this one-on-one thing is important, especially the way Paul breaks it out, because this isn't an angry text. This isn't like a snarky email. This is sitting down with somebody in relationship and talking like two, like two adults. Nobody has any ego involved. And Paul uses this phrase, consider yourself, considering yourself, that you go considering your own heart, your own, what part might you have played in the issue? When have you done something similar in the past? Like uh, looking at your own heart, which is way easier when it's just the two of you. 
So step number one, which is no surprise, is about relationship. It's about, it's about connection. It's something, it's about, you don't do this um, without being invested in someone. To sit down face to face with someone and say, hey, can we get together and talk? This isn't throwing bombs over social media. This is, this is relationship. This is a whole different level than we're used to a lot of times. Because this is dealing with somebody one-on-one. And the worst thing that we tend to do with this verse is, is we have a tendency to, to use this whole passage, and I've, I've done it, and I've used it that way, as someone offends you, and you, you kind of use it to, like, get justice. Like, I, I went to them, and I talked to them for it, and now I can take someone else. And, like, we, we kind of use it as this, like, aggressive, um, this is how I'm going to get, I was hurt, and this is how I'm going to get things taken care of kind of passage. But that's not actually what's going on. I think the simplicity of this is, in, is, is just, hey, you got offended? Awesome, go talk. You gained your brother. Like, go talk it out. Go, go deal with this one-on-one and, and you'll get your brother back. I, uh, I, I know a lot of you guys have heard this story, but um, sometimes I wear this beer shirt when I preach and, um, and it actually has caused a little bit of a upheaval every once in a while. Um, and what's ironic is I, I wasn't going to preach in it originally. We had a birthday party, and I'm always pushing that people be authentic and being, be real. And so we're having a birthday party before church, and I'm wearing my Guinness shirt because it's an awesome shirt, and I love it. And my mom got it for me in Ireland, so I wear it as much as I can. And I'm wearing it, and it was time to get ready for church. And I went back, and I was like, well, I'm not going to preach in this. And so I started to take it off, and I was like, you know what? I push everybody all the time about being themselves, being authentic, being who they are. If I wouldn't preach in it, I probably shouldn't wear it at all. And so I, so I was like, you know what? I'm not getting rid of the shirt, so I guess I've got to preach in it. So I preach in it. Well, Donna Lee came, and Donna Lee sees my shirt. And Donna Lee's, uh, she has some, some past issues, some, some real reasons to be concerned about a, a pastor basically advertising for a beer company. And so the awesome thing was she called me, and she was like, I have, I have to talk to you about this. And I was like, okay. And, and, uh, and she gave me, and, and I got to hear her story. I got to hear about her past and why this is a concern for her and what was going on in her world at the time. She had two nephews who had also had some issues and some problems. And, and so she told me her situation, and I was able to tell her my story, that I'm not just trying to be edgy. I'm not just trying to be, you know, hey, look at the beer pastor. You know, I'm, I'm, I was struggling with my own authenticity, and so that's why I wore it. And we had a, and our, and, uh, and at the end of the thing, I was like, I tell you what, if you'll pray and do the soul work and you'll dig and, and, and see why this bothers you and see if it's legitimate. And at the end of that time, you call me up and say, I still don't like the shirt. I'll throw the shirt away. Like I was like, you're more important to me than a shirt. I don't like I would never want to. I was like, I'm not going to throw my clothes away for everybody that comes in and gripes. But if you'll do the soul work, if you'll pray and, and, and you'll really dig in and, and see why this bothers you. Uh, and it still bothers you. The shirt's gone. I want you more than the shirt. And, and, and the awesome thing was something that was an offense, something that was, you know, somebody was bothered by something I did totally deepened our relationship. Like we had a big, long conversation. And at the end of the thing, we were closer. She called me later and she was like, I talked to my boys about it. They all thought it was awesome that a pastor would preach in a beer shirt. Everybody I talked to thinks it's amazing. I get, I'm the only one and I, I don't want to be that way. I want you to keep the shirt. I want to, I want to confront my issues more than I want you to get rid of the shirt. And, and, we had a, and it, the thing was, something that could have made someone go, I'm not going to that church. That guy advertises beer. Instead, forged a connection we wouldn't have had otherwise because she took the step 
of obeying the scripture and coming to me one on one. She didn't go on Facebook and say, ah, Pastor, beer shirt. And she, she came to me one on one. And if you know Donna Lee, of course she's going to come to me one on one. But she came to me one on one and we, and we talked it out and our relationship was deepened because of it. But things don't always go that smoothly. Sometimes we have to go to step two. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And this is, this is crazy. Yesterday and I have done quite a bit of marriage counseling over the years. Um, we actually started way sooner than we should have just because I'd read a bunch of marriage books and could spout stuff. People assumed we knew marriage. I was like, dude, we've been married for like two years. Like we know nothing. But the church was actually sending people to us because I, you know, I'd read enough on it because I'm one of those guys when I'm going to go do something, I panic and study all I can. So like, holy crap, I'm going to be a husband. So I'm like reading every book I can on how to do that. Like, like you can get a how-to book, you know, like how to wire up a lamp, how to be a husband. Step number one, um, find a woman. <laughs> um, so we've done a lot of marriage counseling. And, and the thing that, that always drives me the craziest is the, the, usually by the time someone goes and sees a counselor, things are a disaster. And so they, they come in with this wheelbarrow full of hurt and, and just offense and pain and, and they just, they're like, okay, we need counseling. And you're like, oh, wow. I wish you'd have come when it was like a handbag full of stuff. Like, you know, and, and so we wait so long, you know, to, to actually go, this isn't going well. Can somebody, can somebody help us sort this out? Can somebody help us have this conversation and, and talk through this? And so we wait until it's, until it's huge. And what I love about this passage is it's simple. It's, it's hey, if you sit down and you talk, and you can't sort it out, get help. Grab a couple other people. Bring some other people in that can help you sort this out and go, yeah, you're, I, I see. And a lot of times it's as simple as going, you know, dude, and, and someone did this for us once. I said, well, she's doing this, this, and this. And, and, uh, and the guy goes, okay, even if she is, if you said that to me that way, it would not go well. Like, you got to change your tone, dude. And I was like, okay, okay, I get what you're saying. And I, and I was, because I mean, the thing was, we were agreeing. I was just agreeing angrily. And so it was like we weren't agreeing. And so sometimes it's just somebody to go, hey, I, I get what you're saying, but you need, to, you need to reword this and have this conversation a little different. And so I love that this verse just tells us, hey, get, get some outside help. Let somebody else sort this out, that every word may be established. A lot of times when we communicate, um, I, I read a, a quote recently, uh, oh, who was the worship leader for Billy Graham? Forever. I can't remember. Anyway, he has the, what's that? The, the, the music guy for Billy Graham, is that who it was? Okay, I got the wrong guy then. Um, anyway, um, this guy said, uh, the, the worst part of communication is the illusion that it has happened. Like that, that we, we think just because we said something, they got it. And usually that's not the case. Usually when it says that every word may be established, a lot of times that's just that, that somebody can come in and say, are you guys saying the things that you think you're saying? And are you hearing the things that, you're, that the other person is saying? Like, so taking two or three people isn't like you're just going to roll in with your posse. Like, that's kind of what we think. Like, you know, somebody offends me, I'm going to grab my people and we're going to go in and, and then we're going to have like an intervention. Like, we're going we're gonna to really go in with the heavy and, and, and confront. And that's not what this is about. 
This is about taking people that can help. This is about sitting down with a counselor with a spiritual authority and saying, hey, are we hearing this? Are we doing this right? Are we having this conversation right? Let's establish what's happening here. I, I passed up so many of my notes here that I'm... So again, this is not a confrontational like intervention as much as it's, it's a deepening of the relationship. It's dropping um, the stigma attached to problems, uh, uh, the stigma attached to counseling, the stigma attached to asking for help. This is about learning to say, hey, I, I need more people. I need more. I need someone to help us sort through this. Proverbs 11:14, I think I got it there, says, where there is no counsel, the people fail, but in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. That's what this verse is talking about. Just getting, getting more people involved in the situation. And sometimes that doesn't go well. And so we move on to step three. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. So now the inferred detail here is that the counselors agree with, with the one person. Now, that's not a given until this point. Like when you go in, when you go to somebody and, and you go to them with an offense and they're like, well, I don't see the problem, blah, blah. Like when you ask for help, you're not going in assuming you're right. You're going in, hey, am I, am I seeing this right and whatnot? And so when we get to step three, we're assuming that the, the counselors you took agree that this, this person is in the wrong. And, uh, and, and so step three and four can really only exist if you do step one and two right. Like to have this level where you go before the church, um, you can't, so you can't just go to someone's house and yell at them and, you know, chew them out and then come to the church and go, that guy, you know, so this is, this is, you come to the church and you're like, I, I, I went to them, we tried to sort it out. We took such and such and such and such and, and, uh, and we, we still couldn't get it sorted out. Can we, can we come to the church? And, uh, and, and I'm assuming at this time, this kind of uh, infers like a different level of church than we're used to. Like, you know, we're, we're used to, you know, if you make me mad, I just find another church. There's another one within 30 seconds in any direction probably. So, you know, I'm not going to... Th- this shows a level of connection where, where you can sort out these kind of things um, in church. It's, it's a whole different understanding of community than, than our context. In fact, today you'd probably have to do it with church leaders. I, it's hard to imagine us, you know, standing up to people, such and such and such and such, gotten a fender bender and, and he won't pay. And what do you guys think? Like that'd be kind of weird in our context, but it does show the kind of connectedness that they're talking about in the New Testament. When they mention church, they're not talking about just this place you go and worship once a week and just kind of check that box off of your to-do list for the week. They're talking about a level of connection where this kind of, this kind of thing can even happen. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about this a little bit. He says, Dare any of you having a mat- matter against another go to law before the unrighteous? That's people outside the church. And not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge in the smallest matters? I love that phrase, smallest matters. Like most of us, when we're at this level of thing, like this is our whole lives at stake. You know, this is like, 
This is everything. And Paul's like, dude, that's small stuff. You guys can't sort out the small stuff? Well, these days you're going to be judging the world, whatever that means. I don't even pretend to know what that means. But he's like, and you can't, you can't judge the small stuff? But Paul, like Jesus, um, calls for a, a level of church commitment that's hard for us to imagine, where you would, you would get in a wreck and go, hey, I need you to pay for my car. And they're like, I'm not pay for your car. And you're like, all right, fine, let's go talk to the pastor about it. Like, that's a whole different, we, we, we can't even, and don't come talk to me about it. <laughs> I'm not calling for that. But like, we're, we're talking about a whole different level of, of church commitment. Um, and frankly, if you don't embrace that kind of community, you can't understand level four. Like, you can't get level four, step four. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. This is uh, obviously delivered in a Jewish context where excommunication being put outside um, the community was the, the worst punishment imaginable short of death. If it wasn't a capital punishment, the worst thing you could do is to basically banish somebody, to put them outside the community because the, the Jewish community was also where the presence of God was. And so you're, you're literally separating them from access to Torah and temple and land. And, and, uh, and it, was a, it was a big punishment. So these are people who understand that this is the worst possible thing they could be doing. This, every Jew dreaded being put outside the camp. Every Jew dreaded being excommunicated. This is the worst thing that could happen. But you can, you can see why this, this level of consequence requires a deeper understanding of church than us. Like most of us, you know, we leave church if they don't play the song we like. Like we're, the reasons we'll leave a church are pretty shallow nowadays. I didn't like the way they did that one thing. And, you know, and so we find a church that does suit us. And, you know, this is talking about a level of commitment where like this is a real threat. Like if you, if, if, if you won't even hear the church, we have to put you out. And this is a, and they, they saw that as a genuine threat. This also kind of limits, this popped in my head, also kind of limits church size, like to an extent. Can you imagine a church of 10,000 trying to sort out people's grievances? You know, this, this calls for a level of connection and relationship that's, that's hard to imagine. But what we tend to do is ostracize people. Like, like whole whole uh, people groups all much almost like rather than than dealing with the individual we say anybody who does X is obviously a sinner and they can't come like we we just excommunicate like whole people groups almost like just assume that if they do this they're not a Christian and they're obviously out like we don't even we don't even get down to the individual level we just we just keep it shallow and like big blanket statements about the people who obviously, I mean, just look at what they do. They obviously aren't Christian. They obviously, you know, don't belong here. And, uh, and we, we lump big groups of people together, which is not at all what Jesus is talking about. Remember that original question. This whole sermon is built off that question. Who's the greatest? Who's in? Who's out? Like who, who can we say these are, the, these are the big shots and then anybody down here we don't have to worry too much about? And Jesus, through this whole thing, is saying that's not how this works. That's not how this works. And maybe that sets up the why. 
why we do this, why we bother, why go through all this when just turning your back on somebody is so much easier. Why handle an offense? Jesus said it this way, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Maybe the idea of confronting face-to-face and taking the time to actually build relationship with somebody and stay involved makes all of us stronger. Maybe there's something to be gained in this process. Here's the thing. And, and, And on a shallow level, people need connection. They need to belong to something bigger than themselves. And they're, and they're hungry for that. They're looking for that. And if they come and what they see is the same thing they see everywhere else, then, then it doesn't meet their needs. What they need to see is they come in and they see a different level. Oh, now you walk in. I just told a Don Lee story and you weren't even here for it. Don Lee's here, everybody. All right. Um, that's going to be on the internet, by the way. That's going to be awesome. Um, <laughs> okay, see, we can't, we can't just let injustice stand. We can't just let people walk on us. Um, that will create a soul hurt that, that's not healthy. Like you, Jesus has to give a way to deal with things. For all of us just to walk around as doormats doesn't do our souls any good. And yet at the same time, to, to walk around with uh, carrying the load of offenses and the people who've offended you is too heavy for any of us. And, and so Jesus gives us this process by which we can hopefully, like Donna Lee and I did, deepen a relationship through an issue. That's where I went with my story now, you know, where, where you can deal with an offense and, and actually grow deeper in your friendship by doing it Jesus' way. So we do this, the why is so that we can uh, gain our brother. Jesus says, you know, if, if you'll do this, you will gain your brother back. And like most why questions, um, it goes deeper. So now we're going to go under the water. And this is where, uh, this is important on the context. The context of this entire sermon, like we see everything in pericopes, like in, in the little heading your Bible puts, this is the golden rule and it gives you that verse, then it gives you a new one. It wasn't written that way, obviously. It was written as just a straight letter. And so the, the context of this, if you think about it, and I think I even, did I put it? Yeah, the context is... Um, it's huge. Let's read it in context. This is the last thing Jesus said before he gets into how to deal with an offending brother. This is the way it would have read. <clears throat> and if he should find it, we're talking about the lost sheep here. He just told, he's in the middle of the lost sheep parable. If he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Like the context of this is, is, is with that lost sheep story. And he spent that lost sheep story talking about how valuable that one that gets away is. 
how valuable, how much that one is worth leaving everything. And if your brother offends you, dear God, don't let him get away. Don't let that relationship get broken. Don't let that relationship fall apart. Go to him. Try to fix it. Like the, the, the underlying context, the real why, is because that relationship is super valuable. This was part of the lost sheep story. Our heart for confronting someone who wrongs us is not that we can get justice. It's not that we can, oh, you hurt me. Well, that's it. I'm going I'm to square this up. It's that we know that that offense can create a real separation. That offense can break a relationship. If, if not dealt with, that offense can, can do real and serious damage. I, I was reading this week. I almost put it in the message, but I didn't. So now I guess I am. So that's... Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about, uh, he said, you've heard, don't, don't murder. <clears throat> I say unto you, um, anybody who's angry with his brother without cause is guilty of, of, uh, of hell's fire. He, he, then he goes, anybody who says to his brother, Racha, which I have no idea what that means, but it sounds like a cuss word. It's got that hard consonant sound, so I'm assuming it is. But whoever says Racha. Um, you know, will be taken before the magistrates. Whoever says you fool will be guilty of hell. Gehenna, you know, will, and, and then immediately he goes into, in fact, if you're going to worship and uh, you remember that your brother has something against you, don't give your gift yet. Go square that up with your brother. And if you don't, you may wind up, uh, he'll drag you before the magistrates and I swear you won't get away until you've paid every penny. Like, and, and it, it feels like when you hold that whole thing together, like he ends with, you could be taken before the courts and, and you'll have to pay every penny. And that started with Racha. Like if you, if you read it all together, it almost starts with this simple offense. Called somebody a name. You hurt somebody's feelings. You made somebody angry. And, and, and it feels like Jesus is warning us, deal with that stuff early. Deal with that stuff quick. Don't let that build up. You, you have no idea how far that can go. You have no idea how out of control that can get. I've got to find my place because that wasn't supposed to be in my message. Um, but yeah, this idea that we come to this with, with this desire to get justice. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confront this person because they wronged me. And if they don't re- apologize, I'm going to take some more people. You know, that attitude we usually come at this with misses the entire heart of the passage, which is in that moment, the offender is a lost sheep. In that moment, they are separated from you. And that's not okay. That is not an okay situation. You go to them to restore this. Paul goes, Paul goes even crazier. This is in that passage we talked about earlier. Oh, we're not fit on the screen. This is in that passage we talked about earlier where Paul was like, hey, why do you go to court against, you know, or sue your brother in the, in the civil courts? Why wouldn't you handle that stuff in the church? He eventually, when he gets all the way down to it, he says, why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not let yourselves be cheated? Which is crazy talk, right? Like, who does that? And incidentally, this is passages like this, when we're dealing with stuff like this, is why the classic don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do, that kind of thing. Um, that, this is what makes me really frustrated with that kind of Christianity, where people are like, being a Christian means you don't see R-rated movies, you don't say certain words, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
I'm like, no, being a Christian means this. Like, why pick the easy stuff? Like, why say I'm going to identify as a Christian by, by keeping this nice little list that really kind of suits my lifestyle anyway. I don't really like any of those things. And so blah, blah, blah. And I don't do this because I'm a Christian. When, when, if you want to know what being a Christian is, it's, it's, it's passages like this. That's when being a Christian is hard. That's when it looks more like taking up a cross. You know, not, not drinking and smoking. That, that's not much of a cross. Things aren't good for you anyway. Like, but taking an offense and just absorbing it and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to get even. I'm not going to do it. That's a cross and that's painful. Forgiveness hurts. I don't know if anybody's ever had to forgive somebody. It's, it's a death. Like any, like anybody who, who tries to make forgiveness like, like petty, like you should, well, what you got to do is forgive them, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the, what, basically what they're saying is what you have to do is die for them. Like you have, to, you have to be willing to die for them. When you have a genuine offense, forgiveness is painful. But that's the cross. That's what it looks like. The heart of this passage is not that you get to take your brother before the court and before the, the church as though it's court and be proven right. The heart is to gain them back. And this is where the passage goes even deeper. And this is, this is the deeper why. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. This is maybe one of the most confusing and, and like misinterpreted passages of Scripture, and I don't even pretend to have it completely sorted out. The Catholics, this is one of the Catholic Church's main passages for why they the priest has the permission to forgive sin and, and really forgive sin. And, then if, and if the church or the priest won't forgive you, you're not forgiven by God either. It's because it's whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, we loose in heaven. The Catholic church states this to mean that the church, when they excommunicate somebody, they're basically sending them to hell because what they do on earth in excommunicating them happens in heaven. That's the way they interpret this. And I don't, I don't believe that, but I do believe that something um, something happens spiritually if we don't get this right. And I, and I, I, I can't perfectly identify that, but I, I would say that what we do here, what we do in passages like this, has a direct impact on the advancement of the kingdom of God. I, I would even say... Um, I mean, I think it's true on a, just a sociological level that if we, if we do this well, people notice it makes a difference and they want to be part of something that, where real relationship connections happen. But I, I would go so far as to say there's a, there's a certain level of, of spiritual power that is released when we stay together that is not there when, when, we, when we break up, like when we, when we divide and when we, when we treat each other poorly. When we talked about it two weeks ago, how the, in the book of Acts, the early church, you know, they were walking around doing these signs and wonders and people were being healed and people were being, you know, uh, 
freed from prison. Chains were falling off of people. Earthquakes were setting people free from prison. All this crazy stuff was happening. And we look back on it, we're like, why didn't that stuff still happen today? Why didn't that kind of stuff still happen today? But it also says that the entire church was in one accord. And they went around breaking bread together and eating from house to house in, in unity together. And we talked two weeks ago how if these were the Jesus followers, that means these were prostitutes and sinners and Pharisees and tax collectors and fishermen. This is people from all different walks of life in unity together. And I wonder if something in that unity isn't where the power came from. Like something in that oneness, in that connectedness, isn't why they also saw God responding in these huge and crazy, powerful ways. When we, when we break something, when we lose something on earth, when we, when we divide on earth, something's broken in heaven. Like something is, something is less than it was in heaven. When, when we allow ourselves to, to, to fall apart, when, when we allow ourselves to, to break, I, I think it breaks something spiritually. I really do. I think something happens in heaven. Jesus said that the way that people would know that you're his disciple was by your love for one another, by how we love each other. And we talked, we talked when we talked about the, the lost sheep, about how silly it would be to walk up to Jesus who's hunting for a missing child and say, hey, which one of your kids is your favorite? Like, and the weirdness of that moment. And I feel like most of our theological arguments are the same way. Like Jesus is trying to save people and we're arguing over bits of theology and splitting churches over it. And I think we lose power when we do that. I think we lose power when we allow ourselves to be divided. This entire passage is motivated by your love for your brother. Is he worth all of this? See, the, the standard in, in, Jewish, in the Jewish context was Torah. Like if, you, if you're caught in an offense, you're just put out, period. One shot, one strike, and you're out. Like there was no, so for, for Jesus to come in with four steps, like that's a grace. That's a take your time, slow down. Don't just cut people off. Like allow space for relationship. Allow space, like sit down with somebody so you've earned the right to speak into their life. Don't just throw bombs. Which takes us into the deeper um, how. So we've, we've done the shallow how, four steps. You take these four steps to deal with it. The, the why, you know, so that you can get your brother back. The deeper why is so we can, because when we break things here, things get broken in, in the spiritual realm. Something breaks in heaven when we break things here. I don't think it's a coincidence that right at the same time he's talking about potentially excommunicating someone, he says, wherever two or three of you gather, a, a certain power is released. Like he, he stresses the power of connection right on the heels of talking about potentially separating. Like he says, like, hey, staying together is more powerful. It's more powerful. And the reason, the reason, the deepest why is, or the deepest how, so we've done the shallow how, shallow how, get that right. Um, the shallow why, the deeper why, the deepest how 
is actually the next pericope, and we're going to talk about this next week. But it happens immediately, because right after talking about what you do with a brother who offends you, he goes into this parable. And he says, there's this, there's this wicked servant, or there's this servant who owes like two million bucks. And the master decides he's going to call all the debts due. And he calls him in and says, where's my money? And the guy's like, dude, give me a little more time. I'll work hard. I promise I'll start paying it off. And he's like, uh, throw him in prison, debtor's prison, like he's gone. And he begs. He's like, I got a family. Please, I swear I'll pay it back. And, he, and the, it says the master has compassion on him and wipes away his debt, all two million bucks. Wipes it away. You're free. Something in, in your begging touched my heart. Go. Sets him free. And he goes out the very next day and he sees one of his fellow servants, one of his fellow employees, and sees that the guy who owes him a couple hundred bucks is out there. And it says he grabs him and chokes him, actually. It says, pay me what you owe me. And one of the master's other servants sees it happening and goes back and tells the master. And he's like, hey, dude, that guy that you just wiped his $2 million debt for, he's out there choking somebody out for 20 bucks, 200 bucks, whatever. The master calls him in and gives him this huge scathing rebuke. I think he might put him to death. I don't know. We'll find out next week. But, um, but, uh, but he basically, he, he tells this right on the heels immediately after talking about what to do when somebody offends you. And the deepest how is, because who can live like that? Like who does this? Who, who walks around and puts this much work into bringing, like, who, who, who goes through all these steps to try to regain their brother? How? How can you live that sacrificially? And the answer is because you've been forgiven for so much more. Like, the only way you can do it is to have an understanding of what you've been forgiven for and how costly that grace was how expensive that grace was. If you don't have that, I promise you, if you don't have an understanding of the grace of God and and its impact on you and who you would be without the grace of God, if you don't have that on the forefront, you can never forgive an offense. Like, it's too painful. It's, It's too painful. If you can't look and go with everything, with the $2 million debt that God wiped away in the blood of Jesus, how can I not forgive this offense? How can I not let, you know, forgive this person? The, the, only, the only real how is, is by accepting the grace of God. If you, and and if, you don't, if you don't do the, the vertical, you can't do the horizontal. If you don't understand, that's where the humility comes from. I've been talking a lot about Joseph lately and, and, uh, and how Joseph's brother sold him into slavery and at the end of his life, it's actually when Jacob dies. Jacob the, is living in Egypt with Joseph and the other brothers. And Jacob dies and the brothers are afraid now that Jacob's no longer there to kind of protect them, that Joseph's going to get his vengeance because they sold him into slavery. And they came to him and they were like, hey, dad, before he died, he said that you should be nice to us. That's basically the Chris Heinzman version, but you should be nice to us. And, and Joseph says this, we've been talking about how he said, hey, I I know you sold me, but I believe God sent me, is the way he kind of says it. But it starts this way. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring 
it about as it is this day to save many people alive. So Joseph chose to believe that God sent him to Egypt, not that his brothers sold him to Egypt. And, and he chose that. But I love how he said, am I in the place of God? And that's the line. That, if, if you don't go into, if someone offends you and you don't go into this reconciliation with the understanding of, am I in the place of God? Who am I? Like, only God deserves to judge. Like, what I want, what my heart is, is to get this back, to fix this. I don't want to lose my brother. It's, 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 this is too valuable, and, it's, and, and the, the unity of the entire body is too valuable, and the power that's in that unity is too valuable. Am I in the seat of God? Jesus said in the, in the very first part of this discourse, unless you can turn and see yourself in the person you look down on, until you can turn and become like a child, and until you turn and see yourself on somebody that you look down on, you can't even access the kingdom of God. You, you, can't, even, you can't even move in that realm and in that power. And that's what this is about. It, it's about going to somebody and saying, we have a thing we have to deal with. Because if not, it's going to sit here like a cancer and eat us. And, and it's just going to, it's going, to, it's going to consume my soul if we don't talk this through. We have to deal with it, but my heart is not to look down on you. My heart is not to judge you. My heart is not to get even and to get mine. My heart is to fix this. And, and, and I'm willing to go through step after step after step just, just begging for this to, to be fixed and to come back together. So how do we respond to this? In this passage, context is, is absolutely king. If, if we separate this, this pericope this, from the lost sheep, we, we, it loses its heart and it becomes this, how to do a proper intervention is what it starts to look like. And it's not that. This is, this is how to save a lost sheep is what this passage is about. And if we separate it from the pericope that comes after it, we lose the... the, the um, the perspective that we gain from knowing that God has forgiven us for so much. And that is, that is underlying anything we might do here. If, if, we, if we pull this out of its context, it's a whole different passage. It's an entirely different thing. We have to leave it in its passage. We're getting ready to sing a song as we go to the table where they pull the words from Amazing Grace, the old hymn. And, and I think that's the, the key to this whole passage is this is about grace. And if you don't drown this kind of thing in grace, um, it's actually a dangerous passage. And I've seen people use it that way. I've seen people go in and, and roll in with their posse. And I talk to them and oh, now, we're, now I got more people involved. And, and, it's, and it's bad because that's not the heart. The, the heart is grace. And, and, and it comes from this place of, with God have, having given me so much grace, how could I do anything else?